the old pilot's plain tales. Check-in Confessions Part 2 The Bad and the Ugly From Part 1 of this tale, you might recall that I was talking about a lovely hotel in Hong Kong, but it was a destination where the company was always shifting hotels and looking for the best deal. The Lowe's included a dreadful Chinese-run hotel in Hong Kong, which turned out to be the place where the SARS pandemic of 2002 was spread from a single guest originating from Guangdong to Vietnam, Canada, Singapore, Taiwan and all around Hong Kong. Worse than being the point of origin for the worldwide spread of this deadly virus was the Sip Sip Bar. Not so much the bar itself, where we always got half-priced drinks, but the entertainment that arrived at 8pm sharp and inevitably drove us out for a meal. It consisted of an elderly couple, a frail-looking gent sporting a dyed black comb-over, playing a cheap electric organ on matching spindly legs, and his plump partner, whose makeup was thicker than the plaster on your wall and who sang like a harpooned whale. No, as bad as this was, this wasn't our worst hotel. I'll call that hotel by the nickname given to it by our crew, the Transylvania. New York is a noisy and vibrant city, which makes getting rest amongst the frequent screaming sirens of emergency vehicles and the bellowing horns of trucks something of a problem. Although the Transylvania was ideally positioned near a famous basketball court, the shopping haven of Macy's, and more importantly, only a couple of blocks from B&H Photo, it had seen better days, much better days. The hotel was in danger of being demolished, so nobody was keen to invest in any kind of refurbishment. It remained a dingy and grubby shadow of its former self. In its heyday, it had been a venue for many famous music artists, such as the Dorsey Brothers, Woody Herman, Count Basie, Duke Ellington and the Glenn Miller Orchestra, to name just a few. Now it was more popular with the ladies of the night, who offered a different kind of entertainment. The rooms were tiny and the windows dirty, which wasn't really a problem as most of them seemed to face brick walls. There were, however, still signs of its former glory in the impressive columns that framed the main entrance and the gleaming patterned floors, but its stained walls, drab colours and worn furnishings were in dire need of improvement. The rooms were equipped with the ubiquitous window-mounted air conditioning units that frequently iced up and chugged like an ancient John Deere tractor. On my very first visit, during a warm spell, I let myself into the small room which smelt dank as well as being hot and humid. I changed quickly to meet the crew for a few drinks before bedtime, turning the air conditioning on so that the air might be more comfortable for my return later. When I came back, I was met with a wall of hazy smoke and a temperature that felt like the Sahara Desert. 
Something in the aircon unit had failed, and it was clanking away, churning out fumes and threatening to catch a light. Coughing, I turned it off, grabbed my suitcase, and exited Toot Suite, heading to reception to negotiate a replacement room. Needless to say, customer service wasn't high on their list of priorities, and it was an hour or two before they could find me a room that matched the squalor of my previous one. Under threat of closure for decades, I understand that this den of iniquity finally shut its doors a year ago. I wonder where all those poor cockroaches will go now. Captain Jeff's most unusual layover experience was when his crew was walked to another acceptable accommodation while on a layover in Louisville, Kentucky. You may recognize the city as the host of the annual Kentucky Derby Horse Race, the first leg of the American Triple Crown. The city is very busy during that weekend and the week that precedes it. Their regular layover hotel spot could probably charge much more for its rooms than the contracted airline room rate, and the hotel was well within its rights to relocate them to another property, as long as it was a reasonable distance from the airport. Jeff was still very new at Acme on that trip, sometime in the early 90s. He was either a 727 flight engineer or a very junior first officer at the time. Although it was quite a rare thing, he had experienced the walking treatment before, and it usually involved a very similar hotel property to the one that had been originally planned. This time, however, was different. They were picked up by the hotel's van, and the driver informed them that they would be staying at an alternative lodging location. Jeff recalls that they drove through residential areas, past beautiful parks and a cemetery. Then, some sort of huge complex with beautiful old buildings appeared, a peaceful setting. The van stopped in front of what he thought to be some kind of retreat centre, located not far from a gorgeous chapel. When they entered and were shown to their rooms, he thought this, this was a kind of convent for visiting religious folk. The rooms were tiny, with a single twin bed a desk and a small, tiny bathroom attached. No television, no radio, no telephone, and this was before the dawn of cell phones. They had to hike quite a distance to find somewhere to eat, or did they have sandwiches and chips for us in the kitchen area of the building? He honestly can't remember. Although the pastoral grounds were lovely, he kept wondering if this place was even legal for them to stay at. Did it meet their pilot contractual requirements? He still wonders, even to this day. Legal or not, he admits that it was a most restful layover. Looking back on it, he believes that they were actually staying at the Bellamine College, now a university, a private Catholic college located in the Belknap neighborhood of Louisville. And the cells they were staying in probably one of the dormitories of the school, which had just emptied, as the college had just ended its spring semester. (music) 
Captain Rick's story starts thus. Nestled along the banks of the Ohio River, Cincinnati has lots to offer, from its chili and goetta to its picturesque parks and iconic skyline. But once upon a time, the Queen City was home to the worst layover hotel in his network. The culprit was built as the Stufa's Cincinnati Inn in 1968 to meet the demand for modern efficient hotel accommodation, resulting from the opening of the Convention Center in the same year. At the same time, it was the first hotel erected in downtown Cincinnati since the opening of the Terrace Plaza in 1948. During its heyday in the 70s and early 80s, it was the go-to place with its outdoor swimming pool, many amenities, podium roof and very popular Top of the Crown restaurant atop the 32-storey tower. From here, your dinner party had a panoramic view of the city and the emblematic 49-storey Art Deco Carew Tower, completed in 1930. Nearby was the adjoining Netherland Plaza Hotel, a favourite of many guests of note, from Bing Crosby to Sir Winston Churchill, Eleanor Roosevelt, Elvis Presley and even John Jackie Kennedy. By the time Rick, through no fault of his own, started making this the place he rested his weary head at the end of a 14-hour non-stop flight from some far-off destination, the former Stufas had seen a very steep decline. Now under the Millennium Hotel's brand, it was a shadow of the place it once was. Everything looked tired, dated and old, despite the cleaning and engineering staff's best efforts. They tried to keep the tired old husk of a building looking good, but one can't stop the passage of time without a very heavy injection of capital which the proprietors were not about to provide. Add to that the decline of downtown Cincinnati as a whole, and sadly there was absolutely no saving the place. The beds were hard and the linens rough, the carpets throughout were dirty, and what sticks in his mind was the very odd two-inch gap between every door and the floor, providing less than zero privacy and safety from random passers-by who would make their way along the poorly staffed lobby and up the elevators to any floor of their choosing. The property closed its exhausted old doors in 2019, and with that, ended the crew stories of oddities, fatigue calls and chest press workouts with a £50 dumbbell in one hand and a £40 one in the other. Steph tells me that there are occasionally times when she has a hotel booked for her, either for a work function or by a well-meaning friend doing their part in vacation planning. She has a couple of examples when this has resulted in a less than enjoyable experience. Sometimes her day job involves some instructing, which takes place at a subspeciality medical society's headquarters in the Chicagoland area, and typically she's booked into a hotel room at a conveniently located Marriott brand property just across the parking lot. She stayed there a fair number of times, 
and whilst it's nothing fancy, it's generally acceptable. One time, however, it was a busy weekend with a wedding booked there as well, and all the rooms were apparently sold out. The wait at reception was long, but no big deal. She was eventually checked in, given a room, and she remembers taking the elevator to the third floor, turning left down the hallway and swiping the keycard to unlock the door. The door had barely cracked open when she was immediately smacked in the face with a strong stench of stale cigarettes. With that alone, she knew she wouldn't be staying in that particular room, but decided to take a look around anyway. She was astounded with the less than salubrious state of the room. This particular hotel had small suite-like rooms with a desk and couch, as well as a kitchenette area. The tables and furniture had all been moved towards the middle of the room, away from the walls or into any other layout that would make some sort of sense. The kitchen sink and countertops had dried food stuck to them. On the table there was a small pile of fine white crystalline substance, which she was hoping was just spilled salt. The bathroom toilet was running continuously, and there was mildew and mould around the main window where water had clearly been leaking in for some time. The bed, astonishingly, was made, but she didn't dare pull back the covers for fear of what she might see. She returned to the front desk to let them know they needed to find a new room for her, and to perhaps consider cleaning, fumigating, completely gutting, or remodelling the one she had just seen. The information that there were no other rooms since the hotel was sold out was far from welcome. She reminded them that she was there on another company's dime and would be happy to notify them of the unacceptable conditions, as well as have them contact the hotel to ask why one of their instructors, a physician no less, was reeking of cigarette smoke. Magically, another room immediately became available, on a completely different floor and away from the wedding merrymakers. Hopefully just a one-off occurrence at this particular hotel, as she expects to return there one day. As an aside, I hope none of the staff are listening. Her other least favourite hotel experience was a number of years ago in Las Vegas. She was in town for a weekend of fun with some friends from medical school. One of them had asked her to stay with them and was quite insistent on staying at the Imperial Palace Hotel due to its convenient location on the Strip and the fact that she was able to get a Strip View room at a good deal. I'm sure Captain Jeff would have loved that room. She arrived without too much hassle, but while waiting to meet in the lobby, she witnessed an all-out brawl in one of the hotel's restaurants, the Geisha Bar off to a good start, and it was still the middle of the day. Anyway, they finally met, made their way up to the hotel room, which her friend had already checked into. In the elevator, Steph asked what the view of the lights and sights of Las Vegas was like. Did they live up to the advertisement? And her friend's response was a bit like, well, you'll see. It turned out that the room did have a nice balcony facing Las Vegas Boulevard. But 
the view was all but completely obscured by one of the giant A's of the Imperial Palace signage. Later that evening, after they'd had their fill of food and gambling, they came back to the room in the hopes of a decent night's sleep. However, in addition to facing the street, even though they were some 10 or 15 stories up, they were also directly above a dance club, which played music loud enough to feel. Mercifully, it stopped around 3 a.m., and they finally fell asleep, only to be woken at 5 by the shrieking of the hotel fire alarm. She does vaguely remember having a good time on the rest of their trip, but the hotel was so terrible that those details have stayed with her ever since. Like everything in Bacchus, nothing stays the same for too long. The hotel is now called the Ling, but she's not sure a change of ownership will ever convince her to go back. And there was me thinking, Steph, that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. My thanks to the crew for their lovely memories, or perhaps not so lovely. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about it at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast. And if you enjoy listening to the stories, then how about leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? 